Hello, my name is Tina Camilla and this is The Studying Block, a weekly conversation on science and society with an emphasis on disinformation data and democracy. As usual, the transcript, additional links and credits for this conversation are available on the sidelines, the supplement to every main edition of The Studying Block. Now in the next lane, filmmaker Inez Ruzil. Our topic this week, documentary filmmaking, its similarities with journalism and of course the filmmaking tools and tricks that can be useful or deceitful. Ready? Let's go. Yes. So what have you been up to? Uh, well, the last year has been mainly Songsang Studios. So we just started season two workshops. We had our first workshop in... This is exactly what happened last year. We had our first workshop in person and then a week later, lockdown. <laughs> yeah, but that's been going really great this season we were, you know, first session, we were kind of brainstorming and what people wanted to produce, what kind of content. And everyone came up with ideas and voted. And what we settled on, which I love so much, is um, queering Nusantara fairy tales. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, but potentially controversial. Potentially, but, you know, <laughs> we are Songsang for a reason. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's, it's so funny because we talk about these things of what is too much, right? Yeah. And it's just like everything we do is our base level is already too much for people, you know. Yeah, so, just merely um, existing. Yes. <laughs> so that's been one big thing. I also started a company. Oh. Uh, wow. Yeah, me and Mian and Yoyo. We started a well. It was initially gonna be like a production company, but then we kind of decided to make it a more general. So it's kind of film and events and kind of any creative endeavor, as long as it's radical and feminist and all those things. I'm introducing you as a documentary filmmaker for this section, right? Obviously, you don't just do documentaries, but there is certainly a distinction between documentary filmmaking and making a you know, fictional movie, right? For and sure, you've done yeah. both... Um, what what can you say about the the differences and similarities in the styles and the, the approach? Um, I mean, for one, you don't exactly have a script for a documentary that you can follow mm. and, and have an idea of, say, the end of the film. That's pretty scary, I would think. I, I would need a little bit more control. Yes. <laughs> um, it is scary. And this is, I mean, this is the thing I always have conversations with, with um, like narrative directors or filmmakers, right? Because they're always like, how can you do documentary? You have no control. Mm. You have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And that's, that's I, I like that. <laughs> Fiction for me is like too much control. Everything is in your control, right? So if also if anything goes wrong, it's all your fault. Um, <laughs> but uh, I like documentaries partly because I don't have to work with actors. I mean, you know, real people is are the whole different challenge in itself. But I like figuring out that story. I like not having that script. I mean, you have you have an idea mm. of what you're getting yourself into, right? But Absolutely. you have no idea of the outcome. Mm. And it's in the process of like, writing it as you go and especially in the editing process that you kind of figure out the story and I and I love that part it can seem like there you don't have a lot of control but I feel like 
in documentary filmmaking, you actually have so much power, <laughs> like so much power um, to determine what you want to say with other people's stories. That part makes me nervous a lot mm. of the time because you have so much power over what you want this person to say, you know, <laughs> which can be the, I mean, you're a journalist, you know, <laughs> um, you can make people say completely different things to what they actually intended. So mm. there's so much more ethical issues and responsibility that come with documentary filmmaking, I think, um, which is always a tricky line. Yeah, documentaries have a journalistic approach to it. Um, mm. In particular, when you're working with um, social and or political issues or subjects, you're putting a work out there that's so easy to be criticized and discarded as propaganda or having a, a biased agenda, right? Mm -hmm. I think all documentaries have an objective because otherwise, why would you make it, right? But how do you approach that? You're going to get it kind of no matter what you do. Right. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to be okay with that. There is always a bias one way or another, whether intentional or not. If you just acknowledge that bias, it goes a long way also. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like the feature film I did, you know, I wasn't going to pretend like I'm not making a film about my granddad. Like I have yeah. to <laughs> put that out straight away at the beginning. So people know that this is the perspective it's coming from. Like mm -hmm. I can't deny that right I'm, I'm yeah. like I can't be like oh I'm going to tell a completely objective story about my granddad it's not possible mm -hmm. um, so I think being honest about those biases and the lenses you have and the perspective you have that's also why I really enjoy documentaries that put the director or put the filmmaker in there meaning like the filmmaker has a voice in the story itself it doesn't work for everything of course but I like those kinds of documentaries because you see the process that the filmmaker went through as well mm -hmm. in kind of trying to tell the story. And I think that makes it way more objective and less biased. You know, in a, I mean, you know, you can see exactly what you're getting. I'm also wondering whether with streaming and hosting services that are now accessible to everyone, basically, um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether the tools of documentary making um, have been co-opted. We make documentaries like Plandemic and Creating Chaos mm -hmm. and Spreading Misinformation. I mean, it's taken down, it's being banned on all these platforms now, but not after millions of people have watched it, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder what your thoughts are on like streaming services. Because I subscribe to several streaming services, right? Which is so strange mm -hmm. because in the early days when there's very few players in the market. The whole idea was that you can get everything in one place, right? You don't have mm. to have like 100 terrestrial channels on your TV, right? <laughs> because you would have yeah. everything in this one streaming platform. But now you have to subscribe to five, six different streaming platforms to watch all the shows that you want to watch. So we're kind of reverting to the old model, just that yeah. you know, it's not terrestrial TV, it's online services. But then it makes it so easy for people to you're watching the trailer um, or you're watching the first five, 10 minutes, you don't like it, you can move to the next 
you know, if you're going to a cinema, there's a lot of costs involved, you know, not just financial. It's like mm. your time, your energy, you mm. buy the ticket, you get your seat, popcorn and your Coke. If you have your bum on the seat, you're going to sit through the whole film. Well, with okay. streamings, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really like you would have to, it has to be so, so awful for you to want to leave because mm. you've already invested all of that time and energy. With streaming mm-hmm. services, you're sitting on the couch and flipping through and you're seeing five, 10 minutes of it. If you don't like it, you don't like it, you just move on. So it's so easy to just put, I mean, I'm, I'm saying so easy, it's not easy, but you know, you know what I mean? Like you can even put, a feature length video on YouTube and it's so easy to to share it as a documentary filmmaker I can't complain you know like I mean the documentary industry has always been quite inaccessible I feel you know besides your Nat Geo's and Discovery Channel's feature length documentaries especially in you know in Malaysia is Mm -hmm. who watches them right the fact that is there so many different platforms that you can put your stuff out. The fact that, I mean, Netflix has basically brought up a whole generation to watch documentaries, which I love. Like, I, I love that, right? And just the access and just the appetite to watch documentaries has soared, I don't know, in the last 10 years or whatever, right? So I can't complain about that. I think that is great. And on the other hand, you do get rubbish like pandemic and goop but <laughs> is goop a docu-series i think it's a docu-series oh yeah that is on netflix right but yeah but i think those have kind of always been around and they're always going to be around like those mm-hmm. conspiracy type documentaries i feel like that was all always a huge genre on its own right i remember mm-hmm. like in in high school watching I don't know where on earth I got them but like watching DVDs of documentaries about how 9-11 was a hoax and and these were like full-on feature-length documentaries that people had produced that was going around on DVDs right so yeah I think that kind of rubbish will always be around I think it's easier now to debunk that kind of rubbish you know as viral as pandemic went I didn't watch it by the way it got debunked quite quickly as well right and got deplatformed and all those things so i think in maybe in that sense it's easier to fight those battles but in general i think it's really great that there's so much access to documentary now i don't know if i'm just approaching our conversation by pitting one thing against the other but i feel that that's the direction i'm heading um <laughs> because the next thing that came to mind is feature length versus shorts versus mm. you know docu-series because some of the docu-series that I watch it could have just been a feature length I mean it, it's not a it's not a criticism of this generation but I I'm wondering whether you know shorts I mean it has a place a lot of like mm. really really short form stuff that you can find on TikTok or Instagram sometimes are, are just so well produced. And then that's mm. when I'm thinking, oh, this should be a feature length, <laughs> which I'm not <laughs> going to watch because it's too long. <laughs> yeah, I think it really depends on the subject. Some things deserve a feature length, 
but also feature the thing with like docuseries and I, I totally get what you mean like sometimes I think this happens a lot with like crime docos as well but like because you don't know what the outcome is going to be you kind of just keep documenting right and that can go on for years and years and years and sometimes you're like okay crap um you know my production deadline's coming up I can't just keep waiting to see what happens so you have to wrap it up and that's why sometimes a lot of docuseries kind of leave hanging and you've and invested so all the time yes. watching it and you're like well I still don't know <laughs> yeah is he guilty or not <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I think that's definitely the case with a lot of docuseries just because you run especially for like tv or netflix mm. or something you have a you have a deadline right Whereas I feel like with features, you, you're probably going to work on it a lot longer and have a lot more space and time to do it and kind of come to a conclusion before you kind of wrap it up in this, you know, one and a half hour package. Definitely docuseries has that issue of kind of just keep on going and, you know, see lah what's going to happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you I mean you can't you it's just the nature of documentaries really like you a lot of the time you just have to follow and see what's going to happen and sometimes mm. nothing happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and then sometimes yeah. a huge thing happens and you hit the jackpot right and you have a great documentary but not always yeah yeah I'm still on the online streaming uh, train just thinking like some things are made for mobile It also means that it's easier to be shared and it's easier to go viral. Sure. With the DVD you watch, it's so much more difficult to make that go viral because you're going to need to pass that DVD to me and I'm the next person to watch it and I'm going to pass it to someone else. But mm-hmm. if it's on YouTube, you're sharing that link to all of your contact list and we're all going to watch it at the same time. I don't want to make the internet such a scary dirty bad place well it's the work you do right i don't blame you for being like oh my god how is this going to be ruined <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you grew up in the 90s correct so i'm yeah. sure <laughs> so i'm sure you you've done film photography versus now like everything's digital no you mean like actual film of course i did yeah And there's something so so precious about film because, mm-hmm. well, first of all, it's limited. You buy one roll mm-hmm. and you could burn everything. You don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, digital is such a, it democratizes photography and capturing mm-hmm. moving images. Do you have a particular philosophy around this? I mean, every time I watch like old things now, it just like blows my mind, right? Especially like old documentaries. If you watch like those you know, World War video hmm. footage, there was someone on a battlefield with a massive film camera going chuk, 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 and then having to change your film reel on the battlefield itself, put in a new roll of film and then go chuk, 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 chuk. <laughs> I mean, like, that yeah. stuff blows my mind, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think any of us could imagine doing that now. And that lends itself to getting, you know, a certain kind of footage that maybe, you know, it's a different way of thinking when you're mm-hmm. shooting with film, right? It's a different approach to it. You don't just press record and wait and see what happens. You got to yeah. like <laughs> know <Time> what you're, 
aiming at. You have yeah. you have 10 minutes of film roll in your camera. So like every every time you hit record and stop record, you're going to count how many seconds is that, how many seconds I have left, right? I mean, there's a certain beauty in that that I absolutely admire and respect, right? But the fact that nowadays, literally everyone has a camera in their pocket is a good and bad thing, I feel. I mean, initially, maybe like 10 years ago in the early days of social media i was so like that grumpy uncle is like oh everyone thinks they can make a video you know <laughs> but now i'm like Shit, everyone can make a video <laughs> i think it's interesting because like i look at like insta stories i'm not really on instagram but i hear of insta stories <laughs> oh you know i know they exist um and tiktoks and i feel like this is totally a new form of documentary filmmaking especially like the TikToks like you know there's intent there's messaging there's research and information and presenting your facts in a certain way like these are all documentary things and mm. the fact that we've well at least the younger generation has become so adept at documenting and putting these kinds of things out is I mean I think it's awesome yeah. you know I'm I'm all for younger people making videos in whatever form I mean, people are not just making rubbish videos. Like people are putting out really well-produced, um, informative things, and yeah, I think it's great. But like, like we were saying, also, it technology has its throws up its different challenges, right? Especially mm. with you know manipulation that you can do now and the deep fakes and all those things. Mm. And I really want to watch um, Welcome to Chechnya. I haven't watched it yet, but. Oh, I did I just, reading... just now. Oh, did you? Yeah. I was reading an article with the director and he said like he made it a point that you should be able to recognize the deep fake, that you mm. know it's happening yeah. on screen. He also used queer activists in New York to do the deep fake mapping, which I thought was also very interesting. I never really thought about it in this kind of activisty type of setting right and yeah. use and you know when you work when you do kind of risky documentaries there's always you know the question of how do you protect the person who you're putting on camera you know you don't want to do the blurry face or the just showing the hands or you know the silhouette it's so boring it's been done and I think this is a very interesting avenue that is possible for people with riskier context to kind of use deep, deep fakes in this way. And I don't, I don't think at this point it's the technology is that accessible that anyone can do it. But I think there still has to be a lot of ethical conversations going around it because it can easily go the other way also, right? Like mm. when you first mentioned it, the first thing I thought of was, oh, it might make editing easier mm. because editing is one of those things I always notice in documentaries, especially like crappy documentaries or like, <laughs> or like reality TV, the manipulation and the editing is so obvious. I mean, of course you have to edit people <laughs> in some way, right? But you know, sometimes you cut up sentences and take, it's so obvious you take a little bit yeah. of the sentence, you put this sentence and you put yeah. it there and you're creating a new sentence basically, right? And that can be really obvious sometimes, but if you're really good at it, it won't be, but sometimes it is. And I feel like if you're really 
conniving, <laughs> you could use deepfakes to kind of get around that because then you wouldn't really have to cut so much. You can just present yeah. all this inaccurate information as if it's one take, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you wouldn't have to cut around it. Yeah. I remember that there was this viral news clip and the reason it went viral was because I suppose they used a morph cut. It was for a Vox Pop, right? So it's just someone straight talking. But because there are people, so many things happen in the background. When you do a morph cut, it's supposed to make it look seamless, correct? Mm. But if you notice the background, you will see this child suddenly appearing out of thin air. So he's just been, you know, released by the aliens who abducted him, you know? Mm. So because the, the cut is so clean on the subject, but not on this kid behind her. Yeah. It's scary how... <laughs> I mean, editing softwares have also come so far, right? Mm. So doing a morph cut like that is so easy now. And if you just have a talking head um, with like, you know, a plain background or whatever, and you do that kind of morph cut, which is just literally one click, the computer can make it so seamless that you don't even realize. But if you have like, obviously a whole background behind you, then people are going to notice. And if you are a news channel, (laughs) then you absolutely shouldn't be doing that, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. Right? I don't even understand why they would use a morph cut instead of just like a jump cut. Or, you know, use your B-roll or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of, of elements of technology in filmmaking, right? Um, let's take it a couple of decades back and look into like the early years of CGI. The pivotal point was probably 2001 Space Odyssey. I guess I'm not surprised that... Um, a lot of moon landing conspiracy theorists believe that the filmmaker Stanley Kubrick was behind the faking of, course, of yeah, it, <laughs> the moon, yeah. moon landing, right? Because I guess the audiovisual medium is just uh, such a, I guess it's such a powerful device mm. that, you know, it engages the emotions. But at the same time, it can create this kind of skepticism. So I'm just wondering whether it takes away magic from cinema or is it what makes cinema magical these cgi and other special effects i think it is a huge difference between like documentary and narrative of course right like the Mm. use of cg and all that i generally am not the biggest cg fan (laughs) just in general i mean i think it has come a a long way But I think, you know, my favorite uses of CG are always subtle. (laughs) Mm. When you use CG with the practical elements of your film, that's what makes it magic, I feel. Mm. If you're making just a complete CG environment that looks like an animation, then I I feel that's not magic to me. I can play a PS5 game and it looks just (laughs) as good. (laughs) Harsh, maybe. But yeah. Um, because people go to the movies to escape, right? It's escapism. Mm. People like going to see, you know, New York City get blown up once again. (laughs) (laughs) The CG of it is only going to get better, which I'm excited for. And that's always going to be like the magic of cinema. I mean, it's not necessarily what I look for in (laughs) movies, but... What do you look for in movies? A good script. Oh. Good lord! I don't. I don't care how many buildings you want to blow up. If your <laughs> dialogue is terrible, 
I'm just gonna shut you off. Welcome to Checknet. I did watch it just before our conversation today because I want to I want to see this technique that you mentioned, right? And you're right that they made it obvious that it was the fake, but there was a reveal at, at the end where they shifted back to the original face of one of the interviewees because he he decided to challenge the torture that he uh, underwent. And that reveal was just so breathtaking. You need it in HD to really right. see, because you can see some artifacts along the hairline, especially when they're not forward facing the camera. It doesn't distract you. It doesn't make you lose your focus on what's actually going on. I mean, one of the reasons the director said he did it was because he wanted to the emotion of their stories to mm. come through. Do you think that worked? Yeah, I, I can see why um, why he used that approach because a lot of the footage that they got were from um, hidden cameras. And so if you were to even reenact it with like A-list Hollywood stars, you it's know it's, yeah, it's, it's acting. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of ethical considerations to whose face you put on people. Mm. Mm. Like, how do you decide what face I'm going to cover your face with? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and who decides that, right? True. Is it the subject that decides I want a specific kind of face to be on my face? Or mm. is it the director who gets to make that decision? Casting in general is already such a controversial subject <laughs> yeah. and now you're yeah. doing this digital facial replacement when when you mentioned this this film and as i was watching it reminded me of this story in um, 2016 i don't know if you've heard of it but it was a journalist in india called yusuf omar who used i mean it's it's nowhere near as advanced as this film but he used snapchat filters to tell stories of sexual assault. So these women were using Snapchat filters, which mask their voice and their face. Mm -hmm. But it's just so interesting to see examples of this kind of technologies that's used and not in a way that's associated with like catfishing or identity mm -hmm. theft, but to actually use it as a identity protection. Yeah. Yeah. Because originally it came from like Revenge porn and stuff yes. like that, right? Yeah. So there's so many malicious things you could do with it, yeah. especially in the form of documentary, right? I mean, mm. you don't have to like deep fake some well-known person. You could just make up an expert on something and have them oh, talk yeah. complete rubbish. And you have a whole genre of mockumentaries that could mm -hmm. then use that as a way to evade responsibility yeah, the, the legal aspect is also another... Because, you know, every time you interview someone, then you get them to sign a consent form and all that, mm -hmm. of course, right? But if you are not using their face, yeah, does that consent stand? That's a very interesting legal question. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's definitely a lot of ethical questions, law. Do you... I mean, you work on queer issues. Do you see yourself doing something like this? I think I would definitely consider it if I had access to it and if it was affordable. I'm not sure how much 
or what the process is like to do it right now. Mm. But yeah, I would absolutely consider it just because it is so hard to get mm -hmm. queer people who are comfortable enough showing their face on camera and speaking, especially in our context, of course, right? For a very good reason. So yeah, if it gives them that kind of security and anonymity, I would definitely consider it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of like how this could go wrong in our context. If you racially miscast them yeah that's that's the thing i keep coming back to is like how do you decide whose face you put mm -hmm. on top which countries activists would not have exactly. their lives feel threatened you know but at the same time i don't necessarily want an american's face on me yeah you know? <laughs> it's interesting it's i mean i i say i'm not a tech person but like you know we're constantly inundated with questions about tech and yeah especially as a, like a filmmaker who puts their content online I'm, mm. I'm constantly thinking about this stuff so yeah we're hitting the half hour mark and there's still a lot to talk about so we'll take a pause here you've been listening to a conversation about documentary filmmaking as a tool for social justice using welcome to chechnya as a case study with filmmaker Inez Ruzil, who will be back again next week on The Starting Block. If you'd like to join me on the show for conversations like this, get in touch at tinacamilla.substack.com. Again, you can find the transcript to this conversation there. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with someone. Till the next one, goodbye for now.